Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Dr. Douglas Shadle. He's an assistant professor of musicology at Vanderbilt University, whose research centers primarily on American orchestral music and American musical culture in the 19th century. Although he does wander into the 20th century sometimes, most notably in a project on the African-American composer Florence Price. Today, we are going to discuss his monograph, Orchestrating the Nation, the 19th Century American Symphonic Enterprise. Enterprise, which Oxford University Press published in 2016. As amazing as it might seem, Doug's book is the first comprehensive survey of American 19th century orchestral music. It has been well received not only by musicologists, but also in the popular press in venues such as the New York Times, the New Yorker, and the Washington Post. Orchestrating the Nation was also honored with an ASCAP Foundation Deems Taylor Award in 2017. Welcome, Doug. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm excited to talk to you about this book. It's such a great book. Um, So as I said in the introduction, now I'm an Americanist, so I know I'm a little biased, but I do think that 19th century classical music by American composers is one of the most neglected areas of musicological study, certainly in American studies. And so I'm wondering, what drew you to this topic? Well, I think that very fact is what drew me to the topic. I'm a violist by training, and I had never played any American orchestral music short of the standards like Copland's Appalachian Spring uh, and his Third Symphony, and a couple of pieces by Barber and Bernstein, just the standard stuff, but never anything by Americans. And the question of why it is neglected in the first place sort of drew me to the topic because as soon as you start looking, uh, the, the music itself is is really colorful and the culture um, is is really interesting and because it's it's kind of the era of great American poetry and novel writing Edgar Allan Poe and Herman Melville uh, and that sort of thing and it makes you wonder why musicians haven't entered into our standard repertoire in the same way that. Their, their literary counterparts have. Just before we sort of get into the book, if you could just give us a brief outline of 19th century orchestral music in the sense, in a sort of structural sense, like how many orchestras were there, how many people would have access to this music, just to kind of give our listeners um, a baseline of information to work from. Sure. Well, one of the One of the more interesting things about orchestral music culture in the 19th century is that orchestras did not all operate like orchestras today in the sense that they didn't have a corporate board with non-musician leadership. Rather, many, many towns had pickup orchestras that would put concerts on sporadically or the local theater would have an orchestra that would accompany the plays and would play overtures or other short pieces between the acts of a play. Then at the same time, a lot of entertainment venues like bars or beer gardens would have an orchestra, especially in the German areas of town. I'm thinking in particular of New York and the larger cities where there were large German populations. And so orchestras and orchestra culture was really much more vibrant in the 19th century than it is now. So in terms of the number of people that we're talking about, I I would say the audiences are are exponentially larger uh, as a relative percentage of the population uh, than they are today. Now, it's also worth noting that orchestras in the 19th century, um, or rather what I'm trying to say is that orchestra music in the 19th century, it wasn't always played by an orchestra. So many times the local town band might do a band arrangement of an orchestral piece, or people could acquire orchestral music 
that was put into a piano reduction and play it in their home. And so in that sense, the, the audience for orchestral music extended even further than just the, the audience at a, at a live orchestra performance. So I think the, the, the filtration of orchestral music into the general population was, was quite large in the same way that uh, Shakespeare plays were just sort of a general part of um, an average white American's experience uh, and, and even uh, some African Americans in the, the free communities um, before the Civil War uh, experienced Shakespeare plays just kind of out and about in various types of entertainment. It was in many ways the same with orchestral music. Did uh, So do you find... Um, these pickup orchestras in even really tiny towns? I mean, we're talking about rural towns in Iowa, or are we still just really talking about the major population centers? It, it really varies from place to place because um, the more German immigrants you would find in the town, the more likely it was to have an orchestra. And that's because German immigrants during the 19th century tended to think of themselves as a very musical people. And they thought that orchestra music, especially music by Beethoven, Mozart, Haydn, and and a few others, was their cultural inheritance. And so even in small towns in the Midwest uh, that were typically run or, or mostly populated by German speakers, you would find orchestras. In the mostly English-speaking community, it's just real hit or miss. And in fact, a lot of times in the English cities, there would be a German uh, music teacher who would be a conductor of one of these pickup orchestras. And so if the town had someone capable of leading the orchestra, uh, that person might try to start a kind of community group uh, that would often begin as a quartet club or something and then might grow over time to become an orchestra capable of playing easy overtures and that kind of thing. And did that mean since so many German immigrants were involved in orchestral music at this level, did that mean that they were mostly playing German music, at least initially? Yes, that's correct. So the the German orchestra associations or even, even the pickup orchestras tended to play German repertoire. A lot of it is repertoire that we might not even consider canonical now. Uh, pieces by the composer Andreas Romberg, for instance, um, would find their way onto programs a lot. And so the music tended to be German. But at the same time, uh, in the more cosmopolitan centers, orchestras would play uh, English overtures or English arias even, Italian arias and overtures, uh, French orchestral music and overtures. And so depending on how cosmopolitan the group was really might determine how cosmopolitan the repertoire was. But in general, German music was going to be the core repertoire of orchestras at at every level. So that brings us, so we had, it sounds like what you're saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that there was a lot of orchestral music available to people through these pickup orchestras um, that were dominated by German musicians and German immigrants um, who were playing a lot of German repertoire or maybe mixing in from other European countries as well, depending upon where people are from. So where do we get then um, orchestral music by Americans? Are these actually German immigrants who start writing music? Where, who, who's writing this orchestral repertoire? It's really a both and. The classic case, you might say, is an American composer who was living in Philadelphia named Charles Homann, H-O-M-M-A-N-N. And Homann was a member of a group called the Musical Fund Society of Philadelphia, which began as one of these uh, quartet clubs and was made up primarily of, of English musicians, English musicians of English heritage. And the idea behind this group was that they were going to cultivate taste for finer music, you might say, in Philadelphia, in addition to earning a profit to help uh, elderly or disabled or uh, otherwise not practicing musicians. So it had both a kind of a a cultural cause and a humanitarian cause at the same time. Now, Homan joined as a player and knew several musicians from nearby Bethlehem, which was 
a Moravian community in Philadelphia and predominantly German-speaking. Now, Bethlehem had its own orchestra, the Bethlehem Philharmonic, and Hohmann uh, wrote one of the earliest symphonies by an American composer. This was roughly 1820, and actually had it premiered by the Bethlehem Philharmonic. And so somehow through his uh, relationships with this uh, talented orchestra, he was inspired to write a symphony, and it could be that they um, were light on repertoire, a new repertoire, and asked him to do it. It could be that he uh, asked them if he could test his skill uh, and have them read through it, and they ended up liking it. Uh, but either way, it was this this relationship between the nearby German-speaking community and musicians within the predominantly English-speaking community in Philadelphia that led to the, the earliest uh, symphony. Now, at the same time, there was a composer from um, what we would now consider the Czech Republic, but it was uh, more the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the time, named Anthony Philip Heinrich. And this character is, I think, one of the more interesting characters in the book because he was kind of a hapless wanderer in that he lived in many different places, ran into all sorts of difficulty in that he his, he broke his violin once and couldn't play, and then he hurt his finger and couldn't play even when he had a violin. And his daughter was in the United States when he was in Europe, and then he went to the United States and she went back to Europe. And so he ran into a lot of difficulty. Uh, but in all of his seemingly endless uh, spare time, he wrote a lot of bizarre music inspired by a lot of the things that he encountered on his journeys. So for instance, he wrote a couple of symphonies uh, inspired by birds of North America, and he wrote uh, another piece that's a kind of a depiction of Niagara Falls, and he wrote a, a couple of symphonies that are based on Native American myths. And so he was inspired by a lot of his experiences in uh, the United States and remarkably had no orchestra to perform these pieces. And so he would have to, uh, in an entrepreneurial way, try to hire musicians, stage his own festivals, do things like get the music stands, rent a hall, Uh, do the advertisements, copy the scores, make the programs and everything all himself. And and this was not that different from uh, Beethoven even in sort of the the middle part of his career with the premiere of his Fifth Symphony, for instance. Um, And so Heinrich was, uh, unlike Hohmann, didn't have built-in connections to an ensemble. And he sort of was a a DIY symphonist, uh, strange as that sounds today. But I think that really reflects the, the culture of orchestral music, that it wasn't, there was no... Uh, standing infrastructure for orchestral music. And so composers often just had to do it themselves. Did this change? Um, so I'll, it, it's clear in the book that when you get sort of later into the 19th century, um, you get some professional, well, like how you would recognize a professional orchestra. You have Theodore Thomas's orchestra, the founding of the, you have several different iterations of New York um, orchestras, uh, you get the Chicago Symphony being founded, um, that sort of thing. Is it easier for composers at that point when there's more of a musical infrastructure with a professional orchestra and a professional conductor when it's not so much these sort of local orchestras, or does that not make a difference? Well, the, the end result is basically the same in that German music ended up dominating but how, how it got that way, it, it depends on the individual case. So, for instance, the first large standing orchestra in the United States was the New York Philharmonic, which was founded in 1842. And the, the crew that founded the Philharmonic was cosmopolitan. There were, there were members of several different uh, ethnicities who were present at the meeting that founded the orchestra and then ultimately joined as members. And th- these were all professional-level players. Well, they wrote into the bylaws of the orchestra that the orchestra every year would perform uh, suitably good orchestral music written by American composers uh, when it was available. So over the first five years or so, so this is between 1842 and 47, they performed exactly one orchestral piece by an American composer, which was an overture by one of the Philharmonic's own members, the violinist George Frederick Bristow. 
Well, the following year, 1848, was really important because that was when uh, democratic revolutions spread all over Europe. And in the wake of these revolutions, or as they were going on too, a lot of immigrants migrated to the United States uh, in, in seeking uh, political refuge, or they simply didn't feel comfortable and wanted to leave. And this included a large German-speaking population, uh, including a bunch of musicians. So when these musicians arrived in New York, they, they saw that the New York Philharmonic existed and said, oh, great, here's an organization uh, where I can continue to practice as a musician. So they ended up joining. Well, the quirk with the New York Philharmonic is that at this time it was a democratic institution. And so things like repertoire and who the conductor was and all this, it was all voted on by the orchestra members themselves. Well, if we have a large German contingent that now supersedes the uh, more cosmopolitan contingent, perhaps in their meetings they will vote not to perform music by an American composer or a French composer or someone who uh, they just simply don't recognize. And over the next couple of years, so this is now between 1848 and 1850, the press really starts to complain that the orchestra is not living up to its legal mandate to play American music. And they wonder why when there are skilled composers like Bristow and a few others, you know, walking around New York day to day, uh, why the Philharmonic hasn't performed their music. And so that, that instigates one of the larger conflicts that you can find in chapters five and six of the book. And I, I really work out um, the, the ethnic division there. And so in the case of New York, the fact that it was a, a democratic institution uh, made all the difference. Now, in the case of Theodore Thomas, who incidentally was himself a member of the New York Philharmonic, he founded his own orchestra in about 1862-63. So this is right in the middle of the Civil War. And I've, I've always wondered who in their right mind would, right in the middle of the Civil War, would say, oh, it's a really good time to make an orchestra. But I guess, you know, the whole world doesn't stop when you're at war. But anyway, he, he decided that he saw a business opportunity with this orchestra and started to play a little bit with programming. So he would do some uh, concerts that were all popular concerts, what we would call pops, you know, it was kind of minuets, uh, polkas, waltzes, that kind of thing, really easy dance music, uh, maybe some opera arias and all that. And then he would contrast these with more serious concerts like a Beethoven symphony or a, a Schumann piano concerto, something like that. And so he really saw this as a business opportunity. Well, Thomas himself was a German immigrant and preferred to play with German musicians. So he would lead his uh, rehearsals in German, and he would find musicians for his orchestra uh, each summer in the German-speaking lands in Europe when he was on vacation, and he would bring them over. Uh, and while he was there, he would find uh, new popular orchestral scores by composers like, say, uh, Liszt or uh, Brahms later in his career, uh, and uh, Anton Rubinstein, the Russian, uh, who became involved in the German music scene for a while. And so Thomas, being a, a German um, nationalist or chauvinist, as I call him in the book, uh, was just unlikely to support American composers. And so in his case, it was the, the fact that he was a dictator that led to the German dominance. In the Philharmonic's case, it was the fact that th they, it was sort of the the dictatorship of democracy, you might say, that if you don't have a 51% a majority, you're never going to win. Well, that brings up something that was so clear to me in the book and that was obviously uh, a big theme for you. Damn, King composers cannot win for losing. That no matter what... Uh, what sort of was going on, whether, as you say, whether it was a democratic sort of uh, institution the way that it was run or it was run by an autocrat like Thomas, somehow there was always a reason that American composers were not going to be played and rather that European and mostly German pieces would be played instead. And I think one of the big things you talk about is the role that critics had in this um, sort of constant... Um, discounting of American composers and their pieces. So I, I'd love for you to just kind of go through the critical reaction to pieces by American composers. 
Sure. Now, I, my question for you would be, are we going to discuss anything else? Because I could talk for another hour <laughs> about this. Um, so the, the, you're absolutely right that, that in the book, it becomes clear that almost no matter what the American composers did, they, they just couldn't win. And the easiest way to illustrate this is with um, on stylistic grounds. There are other ways we could approach the issue, but I think the, the easiest way to describe it is, is on the level of style. So the 19th century in Europe and the United States, there were big conflicts over the, this idea of absolute music versus program music. And absolute music, of course, means a piece of music that's called Symphony Number no. 3, and it has no evocative title, no evocative movement titles, and it's simply, quote-unquote, pure instrumental music. Program music, on the other hand, is music that has some kind of connection to the extra-musical world, either through a title or a poem or a picture, a painting that it might reference, uh, some other idea that's kind of the driving force behind the composition, either formally or uh, in terms of other musical compositional elements like uh, texture and so forth. However, the however the composer is attempting to represent or depict non-musical things. Okay, so that divide was just a major philosophical sticking point or uh, fire starter in Europe and the United States. So the American composers who were invested in program music would be criticized for not being good enough to write absolute music, that they were too um, theatrical, that it was too um, lowbrow, that program music made it easy for audiences to understand, whereas the true goal of music is to enlighten and uplift the public. Okay, so that was the, the chief criticism against the program music style composers, which included uh, Heinrich, the, the person I mentioned a while ago, uh, but also William Henry Fry, at times George Frederick Bristow, a composer named Ellsworth Phelps, who wrote a really interesting symphony about uh, the Song of Hiawatha, and a couple of others who were really um, exploring the compositional possibilities of representation. Well, then on the flip side, there were several composers who wrote in more or less a Germanic symphonic style. And the more patriotic critics would say, well, gosh, all you're doing is imitating the German masters like Beethoven, Mozart, Schumann, and Mendelssohn. And so the fact that they chose the more um, enlightening or uplifting or quote-unquote universal style relegated them to second-rate status because they were just copying composers who came before them. Now, my question for those critics would be, well, what else are they going to do? I mean, if you write a symphony that's non-representational, or even if it is, it is engaging in the historical discourse of symphonic writing. It's not like you make up a symphonic language uh, out of thin air. And so that was really an unfair criticism uh, on their part, because no, no one could write in this uh, quote-unquote absolute music style without referencing uh, other composers, it, 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 because the, it, it was just a kind of lingua franca uh, for writing. So that's just one example among several where critics just found one way after another to criticize composers. And, and I think Bristow was the one who really saw both sides. His early compositions are not representational and his later compositions are. And so some of the critics who liked his early music didn't like his later music uh, and vice versa. So it was this all kind of like he, he never got good reviews. Well, you also talk about um, this whole idea of American music and what is American musical style, which you talked a little bit about in this last answer. And that was clearly a big preoccupation both of critics and composers what does it mean to write in an American musical style <laughs> that seems to be a question with no answer um, did, did you get a sense from reading these critics that they had a strong idea of what they thought American musical style was and just couldn't find it or were they just finding something wrong with everything because 
they thought that, of course, American music was not going to be as good as European music, that that was their sort of mindset going in. And so they just found the thing they they they, they needed to find an excuse for what was wrong with the piece that they were listening to. I really think it's more more of the latter where critics, at least, gain or they acquire cultural capital and a reputation for um, demeaning others, for making themselves look smart. And so coming up with any excuse to denigrate a piece um, in a way works in their favor because it helps them um, firm up their status as tastemakers. And if they kind of gush about a piece, then audiences would say maybe the composer paid this person off or maybe they're friends or maybe they have an agenda. And so in the United States and elsewhere, I mean, throughout Europe and and just not even in music, criticism as as in practice uh, tends to be more negative for this very reason. And so that's why I, I think you find a lot of hypocrisy in this criticism. So I don't know that the critics in general had any specific ideas about what a true American music uh, would sound like and that composers just weren't able to find it. I don't, I think, I don't think that was really what was going on. Um, now, the composers, on the other hand, are a different story. So there, there were just several different points of view on this matter. Uh, and I, I've tended to boil it down to four. So the first of these um, is, is best represented by the composer John Knowles Payne, who was the first music professor at Harvard and someone who wrote two symphonies. And his general perspective was that um, the German symphonic tradition, by which he meant Mozart, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, and Schumann, was the best music available. And that the opera composer, Richard Wagner, who had introduced a lot of newfangled ideas into um, music's meaning and what music's purpose is, uh, was absolutely wrong and had destroyed the symphonic tradition in Germany. And so he thought that it was an American's job to take up the banner of the old symphonic tradition and carry it forward into the future. And so in that sense, he was patriotic, but stylistically, he could justify being a conservative. So this is something that was a kind of nuance the critics didn't even really um, pick up on, that someone could be both American and uh, or both American patri- uh, an American patriot, but not necessarily, quote-unquote, stylistically American. Now, on the flip side, we have the, the total opposite view, which is uh, the composer William Henry Fry. Fry essentially said that as Americans, we should come up with an entirely new symphonic style. And so he made a lot of innovations that were similar to those made by Franz Liszt, for instance, in that he wrote one-movement symphonies. His symphonies are... Uh, all representational, meaning they're all programmatic. They, they Like Heinrich, his things, uh, one of them represents uh, Niagara Falls. One of them is a funny story about Santa Claus. Uh, one of them is a story about uh, a woman who walks into a cathedral and experiences a breaking heart and this kind of thing. So very representational music. And he tried to create a symphonic style that was just 180 degrees different from the German symphonic tradition. So those are two polar opposite views. Now there's one view that was somewhere in the middle, which was that to be American meant to be progressive. So if you were progressive as a composer, then you were also an American patriot. And so this category includes a bunch of different composers who kind of um, wrote in a more programmatic way, but specifically adopted the strategies of Wagner. So for instance, chromatic harmonies, endless melody, um, a bit of expanded forms and tonality, that kind of thing. And so they were progressive compositionally and they felt that Americans culturally, because of uh, the the politics of America kind of leading the the drive toward democracy uh, were by nature progressive people. Well, then the final category is something that you find around the time that uh, Anton Dvorak comes to America, which is the idea that American music must somehow include 
an American folk music style as its basis. So he famously said that African-American spirituals should, should be the basis of uh, a true and original American symphonic style. And of course, uh, a few people disagreed with that and uh, argued that it should be um, Irish music or it should be uh, some other kind of folk music as the basis because they didn't believe African-American music was truly American. Uh, But in any case, the whole notion that there should be a folk dimension to the style uh, really rounds out these four. So just to summarize again, we have the conservative view that the Americans were picking up the lost banner of the symphonic tradition, the very radical view that Americans, because of their difference, should create something entirely new, the more moderate view that Americans, because they're progressive, should uh, keep in line with the progressive progressiveness of the time, and then finally, the development of a folk music style that somehow captures uh, the, the essence of the people that way. So I'm glad you brought up Dvorak because he is, of course, an important figure. And I I don't actually think that we talked about American symphonic music in my music history course until we got to about Copeland because I went to school a long time ago. But I know that um, many people today still teach um, a chronology of American symphonic music that goes there weren't any orchestras and there weren't any orchestral, wasn't any orchestral music until we get to the very end of the 19th century. Nobody knew what they were doing. Dvorak comes, tells them how to write it, and boom, now we have American musical, American symphonic music that's truly American. So you uh, try to um, uh, change that narrative in this book and uh, we expose can call a it whole debunk lot of the myth. Okay, debunk the myth. I love that. <laughs> Change the collective memory um, and do some history on that collective memory. So why don't you tell us uh, what uh, you know? What's the alternative here? What did you find in your research that and and I and if you could in answering that also explain why would a Czech composer Antonin Dvorak even be the person that gets chosen for this role in that collective memory that you know this outsider is going to tell uh, American composers how to write American music? Wow. Yeah. So this this is also a, just a question I could go on and on about. Um, in fact, the the book I'm working on now is a, a deeper exploration of the issues. Uh, related to Dvorak that I bring up in Chapter 12 of Orchestrating the Nation because I felt that the the reach of this myth, if you will, uh, is so extensive that that it just required a more in-depth treatment. Uh, But anyway, so the the myth has two key elements and these are, these both, these happened at different times. So the first side of the myth is the fact that Dvorak didn't introduce anyone to anything. Um, Composers and other music intellectuals had been discussing the makings of an American symphonic style for decades. I mean, that's that's one of the main points of the book is to show that these discussions have been going on this entire time. Now, even the specific question of so-called Negro melodies, which is what Dvorak called the uh, African-American spirituals or the slave spirituals had been a, a heated point of discussion for years before he arrived. And there were several composers all the way back to Louis Moreau Gottschalk who had incorporated elements of uh, African-American and Creole uh, musical styles into their piano works or symphonic works even uh, long before Dvorak even came. So it wasn't even a uh, it wasn't a new idea by any stretch of the imagination in 1893. Now, what actually happened is that in 1891-1892, there was a meeting of the Music Teachers National Association, and at this meeting, uh, there was a grave discussion about the future of American music. And this was true of all these meetings. I think these go all the way back to 1876. And and every year it's sort of like, what are we going to do about American music Uh, in addition to a bunch of other things? But that's always on their minds. And uh, music journals in 1891 and 1892 published uh, a couple of the lectures on this topic uh, that took place at these meetings. 
And then several other composers and intellectuals wrote responses to these lectures. And there is a, a robust debate about an American musical style. And one element of this debate was the question of whether or not African-American music belonged in the true American style. So when Dvorak got here, it was in the midst of a heated debate about these issues. And so what I think happened was, once he's here, someone goes up to him and says, Dr. Dvorak, what do you think about this? And so in May of 1893, when the interview with his ideas gets published, Everybody takes notice because he's a European and the the way the interview is presented is very sensational. Uh, As Michael Beckerman has shown, this was the era of yellow journalism. And so it just became a huge uh, affair, you might say, the Dvorak affair, when Dvorak speaks his mind. But the reality was he, the the idea was pitched to him in the context of these other things. And so it wasn't uh, anything radical that he brought up, but it took on a life of its own after uh, he introduced the idea uh, to to a broader public, you might say, via this yellow journalism. And what's amazing about this is that after it, it happens, the discourse just ratchets up several, several levels. And one of the things I find most fascinating about it is that um, several African-American intellectuals writing for the black press start to engage with this. And they say things like, well, isn't it amazing that Dvorak uh, says that African-American music should become the basis of a true American style. We've been saying that all along or, you know, leave it to a European to uh, validate something that we've always believed, that kind of thing. And so they really start to wag their fingers at the white intelligentsia uh, for being so, um, uh, I guess, ignorant of uh, American, the, the, the totality of American musical heritage. And so there's just a lot of outcry about uh, people saying Dvorak is is not saying anything new uh, and yada, yada, yada. Well, then in the meantime, there's a composer who really jumps on, uh, sorry, a critic who really jumps on the Dvorak bandwagon named Henry Krabiel. And after Dvorak writes his New World Symphony, Krabiel says that this symphony is just the greatest thing since sliced bread and illustrates all of the principles of uh, incorporating African-American music that Dvorak has been arguing for. And so with Krabiel's uh, validation and then Dvorak's uh, publicity of the idea, it takes on a new uh, kind of legitimacy in the discourse when it was really just one option among many uh, early on. And so that combination of factors really set the myth in motion. Now, as I said, I could talk about this a long time, but that was really just my first point. So I now want to jump ahead uh, several years to the 30s, 40s, and 50s, which is when the composers Aaron Copland and Leonard Bernstein are really starting to make inroads as successful American composers. Now, in the 19th century, the book explains that American composers were uh, heavily discriminated against for a number of reasons. By the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, there was much greater acceptance of American composers And so in order to distinguish their music from European composers of the time and previous American composers, they had to stereotype older American composers as being hacks or imitative of German trends or unoriginal or uncreative or unpatriotic or whatever insult would help bolster their case for being truly original and truly American. And and the evidence of this is clear. I mean, in in the Young People's Concerts, for instance, the transcript uh, just just says uh, wrong facts about um, George Whitefield Chadwick. And Aaron Copeland, in one of his uh, published books, uh, makes the same point and actually uses uh, Chadwick as as his example as well as a composer who just uh, couldn't it was kind of diet Brahms or something. And so I feel like these composers had a vested interest in maintaining the Dvorak myth because they could say, oh, in 1893, Dvorak wakened these ideas that only came to fruition uh, in the 1930s and 40s, and here we are displaying these. And so it was very much, in my opinion, a self-interested propagation and 
sustaining of the myth. Well, the myth of, myth of Dvorak is not the only kind of beloved uh, myth or idea that you engage in this book. And the other one that I found very interesting as well was this idea of why do we remember certain pieces over others and how do certain pieces... Um, become part of the canon and others don't. And you're really uh, engaging with a particular idea that I still see all the time, which is a good piece will be um, recognized for its merit and will rise above and become part of the repertoire. And if it's not a good piece, then it's just, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. It's going to be gone. And and there's a lot of argument among critics. Well, you know, the first time we get a really good American piece, we'll know because everyone's going to play it because it's going to be awesome. And we're just going to be able to it's going to just hit us like a thunderclap. And you really um, uh, spend some time in the book sort of deconstructing that argument. And it's still an argument today that's used uh, to explain why orchestras um, routinely only, you know, we don't get this 19th century repertoire in orchestral programs today, and there's a lot of music that orchestra, orchestras don't play. So can you talk a little bit about that argument and what your answer is to that sort of a meritocracy of the canon argument? Oh, sure. Yeah, that, and, and I think you did an absolutely beautiful job of explaining uh, what that meritocracy argument is. And just, just to come right out and say it, I mean, this, this meritocracy argument was used to exclude um, American composers in the 19th century. And, you know, I hesitate to say that the discrimination was all that bad because they were mostly uh, white men. But once white men became accepted, white American men became accepted uh, as kind of legitimate and canonical composers around the era of Copeland, this meritocracy argument conveniently uh, started to discriminate against uh, women, people of color, women of color. Uh, and then over time, other types of underrepresented musicians, um, composers with disabilities, uh, LGBTQ. Um, and so this, this whole notion of uh, underrepresentation being a consequence of the democracy of meritocracy is is uh, an excuse for, I think, an, an underlying bias or uh, privilege or um, just, just outright ism, racism, sexism, uh, attitudes that are perhaps uh, deep, deeply held but not overt uh, among many of the, the participants. Now, back to the 19th century, I mean, this is where this is when the canon uh, starts to take shape. And I think it, it makes sense that the meritocracy argument would take shape alongside canon formation. Now, one aspect of this that, that I want to say up front, which should make us a tiny bit sympathetic toward the, the makers of the meritocracy myth, is that in the early 19th century especially, Orchestral music concerts um, were relatively rare. I know, I know, I said orchestras were around, in, you know, in all the places and all the times, but I'm thinking more about the professional orchestras in the sense that the New York Philharmonic was only playing four concerts, five, six concerts a year for the first couple of decades of its existence, and so to hear the New York Philharmonic, the city's best orchestra, play a Beethoven symphony was rare, and I can see how music enthusiasts would want to hear it more than once in order to try to understand it and appreciate its complexity or whatever you want to call it, uh, whatever it is that drew them to the music in the first place. So on that level, I sympathize. But then when you add in the aspect of uh, this, this diversity of orchestral activity that I'm talking about, that uh, at the same time orchestral performance was not all that rare, it makes you wonder why uh, certain institutions did promote new music and other institutions didn't. And the whole point here is that certain critics came to believe, as you said, that greatness was a quality inherent in a piece of music only waiting for us to discover it. 
rather than a function of kind of collective agreement after the fact or after performance that it was great. And so what we're dealing with here is uh, basically Pierre Bourdieu's concept of cultural capital and prestige, that it's not, the argument here is not actually about the music itself. It's about uh, the composer and the composer's prestige and what it means to say you appreciate a given composer's music, whether you actually do or not. And so the meritocracy argument for me really boils down to uh, statements that are being said rather than any actual uh, engagement with the music. Because how can you claim that a piece isn't great if you've never heard it. And the, the, the best example of this occurs in chapter six of the book, where the, the arch villain critic, who is very much uh, a proponent of the meritocracy myth, John Sullivan Dwight goes to a performance of a piece by a composer from New York who was of German heritage and had German training, but had immigrated. Along the way, he had become an esteemed theater orchestra conductor in London and then uh, obtained the same position at a prestigious theater in New York. And so his background as a musician was completely unassailable, and his training and compositional craft were kind of the high, met the highest standards, you might say. Well, then the piece is performed, and... Um, everybody loves it. Like everyone thinks it's a, it's a really great piece of music in terms of the audience. Like they, they kind of gush, they give you know, whoops of applause and all this. And then the first reviews that come out in the daily newspaper is say, aha, finally we have an orchestral piece, you know, worthy of the greatness of America and this sort of thing. All right. Well, Dwight in his review that comes out a bit later goes into an extreme amount of detail about why it's too early to decide if this piece is great or not. And he even admits that he liked the piece, but that only time can tell us if a piece turns out to be great. So it's like even the music that he enjoys and would consider possibly being great, he says, can't actually be great until we have several years to tell us that it's great. And so he never really put it together that that greatness, if you will, is only a designation that other people give to something. It's not inherent in the piece itself. And so it, it, it's very frustrating for me, having gone through that historical reclamation of, of kind of this canon formation idea, to see it propagated just again and again and again, especially as, you know, it, it, with the negative consequences of the people who, who end up on the, the losing end of it. I mean, it's it's it just leads to stale programming and it, it turns people off to orchestral music if they feel it's not a vibrant, uh, engaging enterprise. And so, you know, we, we, we see the effects of that all the time, unfortunately. Well, you bring up a good point that this myth of meritocracy of the canon really has served to suppress the performance of music today by, you know, really anyone who's not a white man, um, and also living composers in general. Like, if you look at the orchestral and an opera repertoire today that's performed a lot, a lot of it is by, you know, the vast majority of it is by dead people on top of that. Um, but I'm wondering, you brought up that it suppresses today that discourse suppresses music by people of color and white women and so forth. In your research in the 19th century, was there, um, how much music did you find by people that was not, that, you know, that the composers were not white men? Was there any kind of infrastructure to support orchestral music and orchestral performance by women, by people of color, white women or people of color? Yeah, a little bit. Um, it, the, earlier in the century, I, I haven't found evidence of an orchestral music culture among people of color, let's say. Um, however, there was a bandmaster named uh, Francis Johnson, or Frank Johnson, as he was known, in Philadelphia in the 1840s, who uh, did quite a few arrangements of orchestral music. And it, it, I just can't remember. My, my memory is failing me on this. I, I don't think his band was all African-American, um, but it, seemed, it seems noteworthy to me that, that he uh, considered himself just a 
a, a regular citizen, if you will, of that aspect of musical culture. And one thing that's especially interesting about him is that he had, uh, I believe, gone to Paris and heard the outdoor concerts of the conductor uh, Musard, who ended up being an inspiration for the French conductor Louis-Antoine Julien, who, of course, as as the book explains, came to America and made a huge splash in the mid-50s. And so just in a roundabout way, Frank Johnson, the Afro-American band leader from Philadelphia, was just heavily um, woven into... The, just the general music culture of instrumental music through that uh, venue. Um, and he, he did write compositions in that vein. So he wasn't writing symphonies, but he wrote um, instrumental pieces that were entertainment pieces, uh, just very much in the, in the style of Musard and uh, Julien. So I, I certainly consider that a contribution to the uh, symphonic repertoire broadly construed. Um, now, beyond that, there is a composer from New Orleans named uh, Edmund Dede, who eventually left New Orleans, I think in part because of the racial climate, and moved to Bordeaux, France. And in France, he became the director of a uh, like a ballet theater, or he was the, maybe the rehearsal director. It's, I, I, I don't know exactly what his role was. Uh, but he wrote an opera and a symphony, uh, I believe, during his time in France, and I, I don't believe the um, score of the symphony has been recovered. It's something like we only have evidence that it existed, uh, but the score hasn't been found. Again, I would have to check on that. And uh, sadly for the book, I, I sort of stumbled across the fact that he had written the symphony uh, after I made my chart of 19th century American symphonists. So he's not in there, uh, which is just unfortunate. I, I feel I feel really bad about that. Um, but he also wrote some smaller orchestral pieces that, that have been recorded on uh, the Noxus label, I believe. So we can hear some of his orchestral music. Um, then just a bit later in the century, some of Dvorak's students were African-American. And uh, Will Marion Cook, in particular, um, was interested in orchestral music and wrote some, uh, as did uh, Maurice Arnold. Uh, who was an African-American student of Dvorak's. And I tend to believe that those two, in addition to Harry Burley, had a lot to do with Dvorak's uh, sympathy for the idea that African-American music could become a part of the symphonic style. So, I mean, in my experience at least, and of course, you know, I'd love to know more and find out more, uh, there, there were a few contributions to the symphonic literature and this discourse uh, from people of color, mostly men, uh, I haven't found evidence of uh, uh, an African-American woman or uh, even a Hispanic, uh, kind of Mexican-American, something like that, um, writing, although I'm, I'm just less familiar with Southwest and California culture in general, uh, which is, you know, sadly one of the book's weaknesses. Now, of course, uh, Amy Beach was one of the preeminent women composers uh, who, who was white, obviously, and... Um, developed a kind of fame on the heels of her symphonic music and then uh, over the years wrote just in a number of uh, genres, art songs, chamber music, that sort of thing. So a a little bit of diversity um, and and probably about as much as we would expect, but uh, definitely mostly just white men in, in the 19th century. Well, maybe we can end this uh, interview with just one more question, and that is you have found you know, a wealth of music that you talk about in your book. Very little of it, um, I would think, percentage-wise, has been, is available in printed sources and, or published sources that, and with scores as well as parts, and probably maybe even less of it has been recorded. What, I mean, do you see an avenue or a way to try to get this repertoire back, or maybe for the first time, into the regular orchestral repertoire that, uh, you know, a, a fan of orchestra music might start hearing this music more often or do you think that i don't know the time has passed it by and and uh it's it's not a repertoire that's uh going to be able to be resuscitated yeah i mean i i go back and forth on this i mean part part of me says that you know orchestral music is just in a moment of radical transformation that to try to resurrect this this old stuff just sort of more music by old dead white guys is really not the way to go so Part of me says the time has passed, but at the same time, I, I think we could be savvy about this in the sense of 
um, you know, let's work on the principle of substitution. So John Knowles Payne, for instance, his second symphony uh, to me is quite Brahmsian. Uh, Brahmsians would, would hate me for saying that, but it's it, to me it's quite good. Um, and I just feel like the next time someone wants to, to program, say, Brahms's first symphony, substitute Payne's second symphony and uh, market it in a way that draws attention to its uniqueness, but then also um, entices audience to believe that they're going to hear music that's, you know, bread and butter from the, the, the German symphonic tradition. I mean, that's what he was trying to do, and I believe he actually achieved that. Uh, similarly, we, we, we could substitute um, pieces by William Grant Still or Florence Price, who were obviously active, <coughs> excuse me, quite a bit later, with uh, uh, in favor of Dvorak's New World Symphony. Um, so that's something I touch on a little bit in the epilogue. Uh, so the principle of substitution of music that's, that's more or less widely available. So uh, Payne and George Whitefield Chadwick and Amy Beach, their music ha- actually has been published and is available in uh, editions. And, and most of it has, has been recorded at least once, if not twice. And so its ready availability, I think, makes it just a, a prime case for sub- the substitution principle. Uh, my other strategy would be to find the works that are just, you know, kind of blow you out of the water with their difference. And for me, the, the quintessential piece there is uh, Fry's Santa Claus Symphony. I've played this for literally hundreds, if not thousands of people, and not one person has ever told me that they don't think it would make a nice fit on any orchestra's Christmas concert. And I think Fry would bristle at the notion that we think of it as, you know, just belonging in a Christmas concert. But to me, one performance at Christmas is better than being forgotten forever. So, you know, throw in Fry's Christmas Symphony, give some context for understanding it, and then just let the people enjoy it. I mean, this is a piece that is truly enjoyable. Uh, the other really just uh, mind-blowing piece for me um, is Bristow's Fifth Symphony, the Niagara Symphony, uh, which is now the third different Niagara piece I've told you about with Heinrich Fry and Bristow. And this piece is just tremendous because it's uh, four movements, uh, three instrumental, and the fourth movement is a choral finale in the spirit of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And it's just a very long, uh, essentially a cantata movement that, that, that has a poem that goes along with it, uh, praising the beauty of Niagara Falls, and it has a real patriotic bent to it. And uh, one of the cool things is that it even uh, quotes the hallelujah chorus in there at one point. I mean, li- literally, you know, hallelujah, like this. And I, I, it's one of those pieces where I think if, if people actually heard it, that they would really come to love it because it, it's so different from uh, other repertoire. Uh, there are a few pieces that to me, I mean, like Bristow's um, first symphony, uh, he was kind of young. I, I don't think it would even be a good substitute for, say, a Mendelssohn symphony. Um but Bristow's Second Symphony absolutely would be a great substitution for a Mendelssohn Symphony and could work its way into the repertoire. And I know that some conductors are already uh, taking it out on the road through uh, Catherine Preston's critical edition. So it, it could work in that other principle. But yeah, Fry and Bristow with the Santa Claus Symphony and the Niagara Symphony would just be, it would just be awesome to uh, get those on somehow. Well, I hope that your book and your um, advocacy for that music will will help it to be heard more because I agree about the Santa Claus Symphony. That's it's such a great piece. So, <laughs> what every it's what everybody yeah, says. No, I, it, it just is. It, it's it it should. I, there's no reason. I think especially with that piece because of the Christmas uh, connection. You know, we've all heard the Christmas pieces that are played at these pop uh, concerts a gazillion times, it would be wonderful to add, uh, you know, a piece from the 19th century American repertoire into that and let people know that there's all this music out there that, that we just don't hear anymore. So um, I I hope that it'll happen. Yeah. And I I would just add that in Fry's case, it's, it's especially interesting because, um, he, he was a very political person and was an anti-slavery advocate uh, even before the Civil War. And so the, the, the opportunity to make uh, Fry's contribution to the Christmas repertoire, so to speak, um, it just opens a lot of doors for exploring uh, music's relationship to the larger world. So 
just make we make it a perfect addition. Well, Doug, thank you so much for talking to me today, and it really is a great book, and I look forward to see what you do next. And thank you so much for joining me on this interview. All right, thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. 